Welcome to Everyday Pastor. Whether you have been a pastor for 40 years or four days, this space is for you. As a pastor, you spend your days encouraging and problem solving for others, but where can you turn for sound advice on leading your church or keeping your family a priority? On this podcast, Phil Waldrop will connect you with his ministry friends to talk about the things your layman friends don't understand or can't relate to. We want to help ordinary pastors have extraordinary ministries. Let's dive in. I think every church wants to be able to minister to people in their community, but quite frankly, we don't always know how, especially those who, well, they're really struggling economically or socially. So we maybe have a food closet or a clothes closet, but there's so much more you can do to make a difference in your community. I'm Phil Waldrop, and today on Everyday Pastor Podcast, we're going to talk with a lady Well, she led her church to have one of the most effective ministries in their community. Jane Ferguson is one who, well, let's just say as you get to know her, you realize she has the passion for ministering to people, and she has a lot of ideas, and some of those ideas are things that, well, you may have never thought of. That's why I'm glad that Jane Ferguson is my guest today on this podcast. Hey everybody, it's Phil Waldrop and so glad you've joined me again today for the Everyday Pastor, where we're just trying to help ordinary pastors have extraordinary ministries. And you know, one of the objectives we have is to introduce people to individuals who have done things well, not just people who have done research and wrote a book, but rather people who really have been in the field, have fleshed out a ministry that they can give us insights into what to do, what not to do, what they learned along the way, with the goal being that you'll take the nuggets you receive and turn them into a ministry where you are. And I am honored to be able to sit down and talk to somebody. And I don't know how to introduce this lady, so I will use the words of a friend by the name of Dr. Neil Hughes, who said this of my guest today, She is the Mother Teresa of Montgomery, Alabama. Her name is Dr. Jane Ferguson, who I'm going to call Miss Jane. And tell you a little bit of her story, and I wanted to tell part of this story, but in 1988, she came to the First Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama to lead a new community ministry. Now, this wasn't something that was already established. She was called here to establish those ministries. And we're going to get into the details of what they are. But today is not just hearing her story, but it's about how she became involved, what she learned, and the tremendous impact that the community ministries that she started through First Baptist Church are continuing to change lives today. So we're going to get into all of that and how you can do it too. But Miss Jane, welcome. Thank you. Well, I am so honored to be here. And for many reasons, you are indeed an amazing lady. Everybody I turn talks about how you have influenced so many people and many times behind the scene. But before we get into actual ministries and how we do it, we need to know a little bit of your story. So I know your husband was a pastor. You're living in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's pastoring a church. You go back to seminary to get your degree in church social work, and you graduate, and then what happens? First of all, let me say that uh, our church in Louisville was in the inner city, mm-hmm. and we were had been there for 19 years. We were very frustrated at all the needs, but not quite knowing how to meet those needs. So that's what moved me to go back to seminary and to get my degree in church social work. And uh, I had the great privilege of coming to First Baptist Montgomery, Alabama, because Dr. Huff, the pastor at that time, had uh, heard of the program at Southern Seminary, and uh, he didn't know there was such a thing. But when he found out, he had been preparing the church here for 
such a ministry, but he did not know that there was training for particularly for uh, that position. And uh, so he made the trip to Louisville at, to interview me, and uh, the story is that I ended up coming here. Well, the first day on the job, uh, Dale Huff invited me into the office. He said, okay, Jane, you're the expert. Tell us what to do. Mm, I love that. So he was a wise pastor, and uh, he knew that he had prepared the church well for my coming. They were convinced that they needed such a position. And so I was able to walk in to a congregation that was ready to go to work, but they needed somebody to guide and to direct them uh, in the direction that they should go. And uh, the very first thing, and it is so important, it's number two. Number one is you have to have the support of the pastor. He has to preach the need for ministry of this kind from the pulpit. And uh, then secondly, you have to do your homework. Mm -hmm. So often we as people in the church decide what we think people need. And uh, we don't always know what they need or know what they feel that they need. And so it makes a lot more sense to do your homework and then make your decision about what kind of ministry you need. So the first six months I was in Montgomery, because, and because I was new to Montgomery as well as to the church, I made it my business to visit every helping agency in the, in the county. I found that there were 26 agencies that were doing something to help people in the community. I needed to know what they were doing, who was qualified for their services, and uh, what we might do to help. So uh, I made appointments, sat down with the folks. Uh, it included the hospitals, police department, everybody that was doing anything. And uh, I'm asking questions, making notes. Basically, they'll ask three questions. What do you do to provide for the community? Uh, who qualifies for your services? The third question was kind of a shocker. I said, what do you think First Baptist could do to help you help these people? And I do think I was probably the first person that had ever asked them such a question. And they began to just roll out the answers, not necessarily what First Baptist should do, but what the church should be doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking notes and uh, uh, making sure that uh, I'm listening to what they're saying, learning a whole lot. But after a while, people begin to say the same things over and over, whether it's the police or whether it's... Uh, the Department of Human Resources are another uh, church group in town mm -hmm. uh, because everybody that's in the helping field will recognize the problems that exist in the community. But then I also needed to do uh, an assessment of uh, what the church had available, what they would be willing to do. So fortunately, our church had a written history that I read right away. Then I interviewed a lot of key leaders in the church and asked them what they thought we should be doing. And um, because we had a lot of professional people, we had a high level of education within the church. So as I began to analyze the data that I had accumulated, I, I made a list of the needs according in order. And then as I looked, I thought, well, we can't do this first one. The first one was the high infant mortality rate. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that was an issue that our church could address. And so I just keep going down till I come to the one I think, aha, the, we had the lowest literacy rate at that time of any county. 
in, in Alabama. And so what happens is when you do your homework and when you do this analyzing of the, prob of the problems that exist in the community, if you can match a need in the community that with the resources that you have in the church, then you've got a good merit. I'm sure you do. And, and it'll be successful. And because I had learned that we had such a high level of education in our church and this literacy problem was an issue, I knew that our people would respond to that kind of program. So that was my very first program that I started. And, um, and then once you decide on a program, then you are... Uh, are going to start small, you're going to recruit volunteers, you're going to train your volunteers, and uh, that's what we did. And then you build on your successes. And so with that, you always start small. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me interject, because there's a couple of questions mm -hmm. that, that raises in my mind. One of them is, when you say resources, Define what you mean by resources, because most of us would okay. think, well, you mean, well, that's in the budget, or it's just monetary. But you made reference to people in the church who had educational abilities that could be a resource to help with the low uh, reading skills and so forth. So how, what do you mean by resources? If I'm a pastor and Miss Jane says to me, what are your resources, what am I looking for? Well, you, you do have people resources, and you do have monetary resources. And uh, the training that your people have in the church can be used uh, to do ministry. Mm -hmm. And you want to convince your people that the best ministry they can do is to use their profession. Right. And uh, so you, you have uh, different kinds of resources. So when I say resources, I'm talking about human resources, mm -hmm. uh, people resources, as well as monetary resources. And I realize there are churches of all sizes, and uh, uh, one of my problems in talking to other churches outside of First Baptist, well, we're not First Baptist. Mm -hmm. We don't have their resources. But I am totally convinced that every church has something that God wants them to do in the community that they can do better than anybody else. And, and I they totally need to find that. out what that is. And you find that out by talking to the people in the community and in your church. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will respond by saying, well, we know our church and we know what they want or we know what the problems are in the community. And my answer is no, you don't. Mm. Well, <laughs> because when you start asking questions, mm -hmm. you will discover things you did not know. So was there a great gap between what the community needed and what people in the church perceived were the needs? Was that a great gap, or was it pretty much the same thing? Did the people in the church have a good idea, or were they really off target? No, I don't, I don't think the people in the church had any idea, really, mm -hmm. unless they were in a helping profession. Mm -hmm. uh, and no, because that's not usually the way church members think. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, that's why the pastor has to prepare. Uh, for instance, community ministry's emphasis is on helping meet human needs mm -hmm. in the name of Jesus. In fact, that's what we ended up with as a mission statement for our program. And so we um, felt that it was important to uh, train ourselves and be knowledgeable of what the Bible has to say about helping people. Mm -hmm. And there's no lack for information. Right. Uh, I recall uh, Spurgeon, the great theologian, mm -hmm. is saying that the church that doesn't do good in the slums has no right to exist. And I agree with him. 
I agree entirely with mm-hmm. that. And then we know uh, the words of Jesus. And somebody uh, has taken the time to count the number of times uh, the New Testament talks about the poor. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to meet human needs in the name of Jesus, we need to know what the Bible teaches, Mm -hmm. and we need to know uh, what Jesus taught us about how we should relate to others. And one of the things I've discovered in my years of experience, that all of us carry our prejudice with us. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes we're prejudiced and don't even know it. So what better way can we overcome our biases and prejudice toward the people that we want to serve Mm -hmm. than to go to the Scripture? Right. And sometimes those prejudices are racial, Mm -hmm. but sometimes they're economical. Absolutely. And sometimes it's just a prejudice of those people in that part of town or perceptions about people in that. And you're right. And I think Mm -hmm. we sometimes, I think, but as we get into the community, and we actually engage with people, we find out a lot of our preconceptions about, and I'm putting this in quote, Mm -hmm. those people, as we would sometimes say, is not real at all. They're really people who want to be loved and do want to be helped and who have a need. I mean, to say to somebody, well, I can't believe you can't read, but you're not willing to help them learn to read, is not really being the hands of Jesus at all. Absolutely. And we also need to understand why they didn't learn to read. Mm-hmm. And so that that's what I mean when I say that we have to overcome our assumptions, right. biases, and prejudice toward others because we often tend to blame the victim. Mm-hmm. And if we want to serve the community, we want to serve hurting people, We want to uh, serve people, say, that live below the poverty level. Mm -hmm. Then we must understand those people. And uh, a part of it is studying, doing research, but also getting to know them, as you said, because that's the best way to overcome the barriers. Now, I want to go back to, so you spent, and I don't want people to miss this, you spent six months, if I understood you correctly, before you launched anything, absolutely six months studying, this is what's the need in the community mm-hmm. that our church can meet. And I just have to ask, when you made that list and discovered from talking with the agencies and other people of what was needed, how long was that list? I mean, how many things um, did you initially discover? Would you I say? had eight things on that list, the top eight problems in Montgomery County, the first one was the high infant mortality rate. Mm-hmm. The second was housing, mm-hmm. transportation, and the f- then I got down to the fourth one, and that was the high illiteracy rate. And uh, that's when I stopped. That's the one mm-hmm. that God pointed out to me because I had also done my homework in the church. Mm-hmm and knew about the educational level of people in our church. And I thought to myself, that's something they can really appreciate, and they can uh, go for that one. Right. And so they let's, did. Let's take that one. So you realize now I've got a good match between the resources mm-hmm. God has given our church and a need in the community. What was your next step? The next step was to start recruiting volunteers and to... Um, make connections with the people that could send us the people that needed to learn how to read. And then I had uh, a lady uh, who happened at that time to be Dr. Essie Stevens, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, was a trainer right. in literacy. And uh, she did our first training. So there are people out there yes. that you that people can find, and I would assume fairly easy, within their denomination or other places, who will help train you on how someone can sit and help someone learn to read. Absolutely. It, it, Whether it's literacy or some other thing, you can always find resources within the church or outside the church or maybe the denomination or the state uh, or, the your, state or even your local 
um, association. Because what I've heard from many people who are in church ministries, there are more people willing to train you if you would just find the volunteers. That's almost the easy part to do, to have somebody come in and say, here's how you do it. Yes. Now, I want to ask this question because I think this might be an issue for some pastors. When you start going out into the community, and and I'll just touch on this and let you respond to it, how does the community respond when all of a sudden it is, in your case, the big First Baptist or, you know, the First Methodist or the First Presbyterian, whatever the mm-hmm. case may be, the community has a perception about a church, whether that perception is true or not. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, other, other, they don't care about us or, you know, they're too rich for us or whatever. How did you overcome any of those barriers in the community to make the community willing to accept what the church was trying to do? I think it's the other way around. If you want to change your church's reputation in the community, mm-hmm. you start serving the people in the community. Well, that's good. And those people will be grateful, and they will be glad to provide their services for you and make them available to you. And I would say, and I I think most people in this church would agree with me, that when I came here in 1988, this church was known as the old, aristocratic, rich, wealthy downtown church. Mm-hmm. That's not the way this church is known today. Mm-hmm. And I think that most of this congregation would say that the turning point in changing that perception. false mm-hmm. perception was community ministries and our reaching out into the community. Uh, our pastor, Jay Wolf, would always say that. That, that that was the turning point. So and, uh, you you start this program. You've matched these volunteers who are willing to work with people. And I'm assuming are these with that particular issue with these adults who couldn't read or yes, children. These adult. were adults who okay. who really struggled with reading. And I'm assuming you used at that time church property, so you yes. can use your church okay. to bring them here. Absolutely. And normally, would that be like at night? I'm not trying to get too far down in the weeds, uh-huh. but just to get a feel on what ministry like well, this looks like. And that, but that's another good point to make. If you're going to provide services for the people in the community, you got to make it available when they can be there. That's a very good point. And a lot of the people that couldn't read were working. So we had night classes, but we had a day class for those that were not employed, so they could become employed. And um, but I will have to say too, um, while um, we were getting our literacy program up and going, I was already a little ahead, mm-hmm. and I was already looking at other options and opportunities that we had available to us. So in the very beginning, most all of them had to do with education. We have had a tutoring program for children uh, in uh, this church for 30 years. Mm. We still have it. And uh, I was adding up the other day, and we are probably tutored over 1,000 children uh, during that period of time, one-on-one tutoring once a week where we bring them to the church and we feed them their evening meal and do one-on-one tutoring with them before we took them home. And uh, that has been a very successful program. It's a life-changing program. Uh, Even today, uh, since I've been retired, I will run into adults (laughs) Mm. who will say, Oh, Miss Jane, I was in your tutoring program. Just the other day, I ran into a nurse at the a nursing home where I was visiting a friend. She was now a nurse, mm-hmm. and and that that's very rewarding. I have uh, youngsters that have grown up and gotten gone to college, and mm-hmm. I'm c- convinced that those children would not have had that opportunity had they not had a church, uh, a church that cared enough to provide that kind of uh, ministry. And because it's one-on-one, a lot of times a church or an individual in the church 
carries on that relationship. It's all about building relationships. Right. And um, so we have uh, people in our church who stay in touch with their tutor, even though they may be married and have children now. But they were friends. They were friends. They were they, friends. Yes. Incredible. And so that relationship can go as far as you want to take it. Mm-hmm. Now, in both of these ministries that I've already mentioned, doesn't cost very much. Mm-hmm. So a church that doesn't have a lot of financial resources can do these kinds of things. They've just got to be willing to give of their time. And then another area that I know of, kind of in that same line, that some churches are doing, but just to plant seeds, is English as a second language. And you started that sometime later, yes. correct? Yes, yes. And people, again, make an assumption because most of the time when you say English is second language, people immediately think Spanish because a lot mm-hmm. of are Spanish-speaking people. But I know in a church not far from where I live, they took the step to survey the community and found a large Vietnamese community of women and men wanting to learn English as a second language. They didn't even know they existed till they got out in the community and they found this community within a community and all of a sudden had a tremendous ministry of using English as a second language. Did you find that to be yes. successful? Uh- Our first uh, conversational English school, uh, we started, and it was made up mainly of wives of the military from Maxwell, since Maxwell's right here in our Yeah, Maxwell Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a wonderful working relationship with Maxwell. We convinced them that we weren't trying to part proselyte we were just welcoming them into our church and and uh so it grew to be over 200 it still exists but in addition when i say you build on your successes Mm -hmm. that program was so successful that we thought we need because we have so many um internationals in our community we added a monday tuesday wednesday school so now you can come to First Baptist four days a week to learn how to speak English. And not only, and it's free, no mm-hmm. cost, all volunteers. And then we have another program in another area of town for those that I'll tell you about later. But uh, yes, uh, but when, I, when we started our work with internationals, I did that community needs assist, assist, uh, assessment all over again mm-hmm. just to find out where their internationals in our community lived. And we took a big map. We pinpointed where they tend to locate in uh, you know, congregation mm-hmm. or in uh, the same communities. And we were kind of shocked at where those spots were. We thought we knew. But we really didn't. So, again, another reason why you um, do your homework. Now, I want to go back because one of the things that I think most pastors listen to what I'm saying is there's a a score of opportunities. And what I hear you saying is access what's in the community. There are plenty of agencies that will talk about the needs and how you can help fit the needs. Because I will say this, I don't know of a single agency or group anywhere in the world or in America that has the resources to meet all the needs they see. And that's where the church can step in with the resources. So I find they always are welcoming your help and your assistance in the community, even if it's not their expertise. You mentioned the police department, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times the police department knows these these are areas and these are needs that need to be met. But it's not the police department's role to do that, but we'll help direct you towards the people who need that kind of help. A good example of that, that's why we started our Nehemiah Community Development Program out in the north uh, part of town mm-hmm. because that was an area that the police department directed me to as one of the most needy places in the city. So they kind of directed you and helped you because they knew the streets better than anyone else. 
So, but I want to go back because most pastors are thinking in their mind right now, well, we do have a community ministry. We have a clothes closet and we have a food pantry. And that pretty well consists of what they have. Now, I noticed in the early days when you were making this list, those two things were not on your list. Now, speak to churches who are trying to do that. What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? Okay. Um, in my case, I can you know can speak out of my own experience. There were a few other churches in town doing um, food and clothing. Mm-hmm. There's a bottomless pit. You always need those services in the community, and so that was about the fourth thing program that I started. And uh, we began by doing food and clothing and financial assistance. And uh, we located across the street from the church. We uh, had uh, to have, it took, after we had grown a bit, it took about 60 volunteers a week for the caring center that we named it the caring center could be but when I guess in answer to your question though I'm the type of person who wants to do whatever I do especially ministry in the very best possible way I I think God expects our best and and to do it in a professional way. And if you do your ministry in a professional way, the people, that's another reason the people in the community will respond to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we hadn't been open a month until we found all of these groups that I'd already been working with out in the community sending all their folks to us. So it didn't take us any time to right. go. So one of the things that we did is take referrals from other agencies in the community, mm-hmm. and that helped build the base of right. our caring center ministry. Just this last year, we moved into a new building, and we serve thousands of people every year and tons of food and um thousands of dollars in financial assistance. Now, I want to raise an issue that I hear a lot of pastors raise and a lot of lay people raise Mm -hmm. when it comes to doing social ministries. They feel like you are enabling a cycle. In other words, if you help with finances or if you give them food or you give them clothes, you're enabling them to continue in that lifestyle. So what were your ground rules in terms of helping people when it comes to money or finances or food, clothes, did you have rules? And how did you help people rather than enable people? And I don't want to sound like one of those who's an echo chamber of that, but I think it's a legitimate question that pastors hear a lot when they try to do community. I hear that a lot Mm -hmm. in the church, or used to. I will start by by saying that the caring center where we did or do food, clothing, and financial assistance is putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Mm-hmm. We're not solving anybody's problem. And with food and clothing, you're just giving people the crumbs from your table. You're giving them things you don't want. And are you giving them food to eat? But it's temporary. So of all of the ministers we have, to me, that's the least life-changing ministry that we have. And uh, it's not that we shouldn't do it, because the Bible teaches us Mm -hmm. to feed the hungry, clothe the naked. We could go on and on. We must do those things. But The more things that we can do that will be life-changing, the better and more successful we will be. So that's why we do that plus all the other things we do. So if I could just, as an observer, 
life change is probably going to happen more with a child who is being tutored over a long period of time. Even though he may need clothes today and he may need Mm -hmm. food, um, it's kind of that word picture to me of you're investing in his life and as he does well in school then they become the nurse at the nursing home or they're a college graduate that's a better investment but in some ways it's a deeper investment i mean it's it's easy to give you clothes out of my closet it's not either or it's both right and that the bible commands us Mm -hmm. to do those things but yes life-changing experiences are more uh, apt to occur in a tutoring program, a literacy program where you're teaching somebody to read mm-hmm. or l- helping somebody with English as a second language so they can get a job and be more productive mm-hmm. and so forth. And all the while, you're, and we haven't talked about this yet, but I want to bring it in here, is we're looking for those teachable moments when we have the opportunity to share the gospel. Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer that we don't do these things just as a hook to do evangelism Mm -hmm. because I believe with all my heart the Bible teaches us that we're to love one another and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say if they do thus and so. And so out of... The best motive for doing community ministries that I've ever come up with, and it's not my idea, but Mm. I believe this with all my heart. If we help other people out of gratitude for what God has done for us is the purest motive that Mm. we can have. And that's where Mm. I believe the pastor, teachers... Sunday school teachers, whoever, have the opportunity to teach God's Word to the people in the church so that they understand in their giving of themselves and uh, their uh, clothes, food, whatever, if they're doing it in the name of Jesus to help someone else, it's like doing it to Him. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Uh, we erase those motives of, well, this person might not be worthy. Hey, if if I had that attitude, would I be worthy of what God has done for me? Absolutely. No. Yeah. That's right. And so why should we mm-hmm. expect mm-hmm. other people to be, worthy. quote, worthy? That's a word I don't even like to put in my vocabulary. When we're suffering others, and there's a good there's a good point you raise, and it's a balance. We don't do these things solely for evangelism, but while doing these things, there are times we have the opportunity to share the gospel. Absolutely, and you know? we should, and there's and a balance, we must. and it has to do with motive. Uh-huh. I love that that it's we do it out of gratitude. God's called us to it. We're expressing it. And it's a little, I remember when I was a child, I remember my dad giving a needy man some money, and I said, well, what is he going to do with it? And began to say, he's probably going to buy drugs or whatever. And my dad turned to me and said, I have been obedient to what God told me to do. He's responsible to God for what he does with it. And I say that a Mm -hmm. a whole lot. And it it helped me to understand Uh as a young child that I... I'm not responsible for the result. My, God called us, as you said, to feed and to in, in love. Really what he's calling us to do is to love people. Absolutely. All of these things you're talking about and is a way And we don't need to have an ulterior motive. Right. But having said that, um, one of my favorite evangelism professors in seminary mm-hmm. said, and I will never forget it, evangelism moves best on the wings of ministry and he's right and i totally believe that there are some people that are hurting so bad Mm -hmm. or they've had so many bad life experiences that they can't even begin to comprehend god's love unless they can experience it in human flesh. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, I often tell our volunteers that we're doing what I would call incarnational evangelism. 
That's a good they word. have to see Christ in yes. us. And so when uh, someone comes to the caring center, uh, the way you treat them while they're there is going to make a world of difference. Mm-hmm. We want them to feel like they're our guests. We uh, say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. Many of them have never been referred to that way. It shows a sign of respect. Uh, the even though I'm a woman, when I was uh, when we have men uh, that come into our programs, I always make it a point to maybe pat them on the shoulder or do something to let them know that I'm not afraid of them. Because mm-hmm. fear is another thing that a lot of volunteers come to us with, and they have to overcome that fear because they've uh, never been in that part of town or work with these people who have some struggles that are different from theirs. And so if you were talking today, if you were sitting down with a young pastor in a church and they said, Miss Jane, we totally agree with you. We want to do it. I want to just make sure that I understand your steps. Number one, start by listening, going into the community, what talking I call with the a community. A needs what assessment. are their a needs assessment? What what is it really that our community needs? Don't try to do everything at first. I think a lot that's a mistake. Start you get a, you get a list of eight, and we're going to do all eight. Start with one thing we can do, and let's do it well. Mm-hmm. And once we and and do it well, and we start as you say, build on your successes. Now here's another need that we can begin to meet, and allowing people who to volunteer people to be involved because I think one of the things we miss in our church today is a lot of people who sit in church Sunday after Sunday, Mm -hmm. they want to be involved in missions. And that's a word we haven't really Mm -hmm. even used, but missions doesn't have to be across the country or in another country. Mission starts right where we are. Ministry starts right where we are. And when you give people an opportunity right where they live to do ministry, they want to do it. They don't know how to do it. And so when the church steps up and gives them that opportunity, sometimes I think people blossom as a volunteer because there's two sides. You know, when I've talked to people who have been involved in the community ministries that you lead, they always talk about what it did for them, and they're the volunteer. Mm -hmm. And it's not about they started for the one with the need, but as they often said, it ended up I'm the one who was being blessed that that is a very common but uh, uh volunteers volunteer for a lot of different reasons mm-hmm. and no matter what the reason is some want to make friends somebody some are bored at home they just retired and they don't know what to do with themselves they'll come volunteer but whatever their motive when they come before long we want them to know uh the real reason why we're there to serve. And that's where your training of your volunteers come in. Training volunteers is extremely important. Get, taking time to teach them what you want to do mm-hmm. and help them work. And why we're that. doing it. I want to wrap this up because I want to, mm-hmm. I want to motivate people a little bit. If I asked you, Miss Jane, what is your greatest success story? Or who is somebody that if I ask you to bring forth one person that just makes you go to bed every night, for lack of better words, grateful that you followed God's call and helped the church in community ministries. Whose story would you tell me? Wow. I'll tell you one of the first stories. Uh, I wrote a chapter for a book on church social work, and I used her as an example. One of the first people I met when I came here was a young lady who was living in a very abusive situation, and she had three children. Her husband was incarcerated, but he had just come home, and he picked up his old habits and was still she still found herself in an abusive situation. We got her out of that situation. Um, We helped her through the years and through all the ministries that we provided. And um, 
at a certain point, uh, she decided to go back to school. She got her high school diploma, went on to college. I went to her graduation from college. Now her children are grown and they're successful. And uh, she's an active member of her church. That would be one example. Now, uh, we don't always see the success of our labor. I will have to say that. Uh, but the older you get, I think that's one of God's blessings is that you do. For instance, I can go to Walmart and somebody will say, Oh, Miss Ferguson, you helped me back in 19-something. <laughs> I don't have a clue who they are or could not remember when I helped them. But what a wonderful feeling to know the people you help don't forget that you help them. Mm-hmm. But uh, another kind of example was just this week. I was in the cafe that we have with conversational English. When they're not in class, they can come to the cafe. And we have volunteers that sit around and just talk with our internationals to help them practice their English. Well, yesterday, I was sitting at the table with uh, two ladies from Korea and a lady from Colombia and a gentleman from China an elderly gentleman, and uh, he's a believer. And every once in a while in our conversations, he'll bring up uh, his Bible and talk about it. So we've had a few conversations before. But yesterday, I had the opportunity to talk to two Buddhist women from Korea with a beautiful lady uh, from Colombia who was Roman Catholic and explain Easter mm. and why we celebrate the resurrection. That is a thrill that I just can't put into words. Wow, that you get to be a part of that. And by the I way, did. I just caught something when you said mm-hmm. that. I thought you were retired. <laughs> I am. <laughs> but, you're st- but now I get the feeling... <laughs> You're still a volunteer. It's still in my blood. It's still I in volunteer your blood. in conversational English and I volunteer at the Caring Center. Because it's still because even though it was your job on staff, it was your calling and you really never Absolutely. get away from your calling and your ministry to do that. Well, I know that there are many pastors and ministry leaders who are listening to us. And what I want them to take away from this conversation is number one, uh, I don't think it's a question of should your church do community ministries? I think we're commanded to do it. Absolutely. And number two is you don't have to, you know, sometimes people look at a ministry like after you retired after 28 years, I think it was. How long mm-hmm. were you in that position? 28 staff, years. 28 years. And they see a lot of programs. But as you indicated, you didn't start big. No. And don't try to be big. Big Started size, with nothing. Right. And size <laughs> the size of what you're doing is not where you want. Start with doing one thing and doing it well, building on your successes yeah. to help with them. And I know you're um, a, a proponent of that sometimes there may not be something your ministry could do, but there was another ministry that could help, or there was there was another directing them to an agency that possibly could help them. Um, we should level. never think we can be all things to all people. Correct. But if you have referred someone to someone else who can help them, Mm -hmm. you still have ministered to them by giving them the right direction. And sometimes people just need direction. They just need direction. So that's a part of the ministry, too, Mm -hmm. is having the knowledge of where to send people for the help they need, Mm -hmm. even if you can't do it. I say uh, we can say no to people, and they can leave happy because we still have helped them by directing them in the right direction. What they're doing. Well, you've been such an encouragement, uh-huh. and I go back to what I say again, what Neil Hughes said about you, the Mother Teresa of Montgomery, <laughs> and that is so much a perception in this community. Uh-huh. Because, And I think that's a credit to the church and to your ministry, because you were just the face to a lot of people of what you represented, all those volunteers. But what it what to me, to know that 
all the people that you have touched, and and I haven't said this before, but um, in the program or in the podcast, but one of the people that you touched in a profound way was my own daughter. <laughs> Debbie and I have two daughters, and our oldest daughter was at the University of Alabama in social work, and I remember... Uh, she called me and she said, Daddy, I, I've never asked you to pull any strings for me, <laughs> which I laughed <laughs> because I'm like, well, you haven't today. But she said, I want to go to First Baptist Church in Montgomery, and they have a, a program there that I can do my internship or that she wanted to do for a social degree. And she asked me what I call Jay Wolf and see if I could <laughs> help make that happen. And I said, I can do what I can. And, um, and she came here and served with you. And uh, literally every day, I your name gets mentioned every conversation. So she was a, a great blessing to me and to our ministry. But I, I can also tell you that I had over two hundred uh, interns, which was another ministry within itself, because I like to teach uh, young people to serve in ministry and see. Sh- let them see how they can use the skills that they've learned Mm -hmm. in ministry. And she did and continues Mm -hmm. to do that. And um, so sometimes your influence that we have when we're doing community, is just being an example. It's endless. It's endless. (laughs) And the Lord used that. So as just one proud dad, who also (laughs) through that, I got a son-in-law. And a good one. So, and I take care of it for that too. <laughs> but thank you for sharing your heart and just helping people with just some nuggets and some insights today as they do community ministry in the name of Jesus. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Everyday Pastor. Our hope is that this conversation will be a resource to you both personally and professionally as you navigate the high calling of leading a church. For more information on today's topic, a list of related resources, or information about today's guest, please visit everydaypastor.info. Don't forget to subscribe to Everyday Pastor so you don't miss an episode, share it with your friends, and follow at Phil Waldrop on Instagram for podcast updates.